Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 196 for May 14th, 2009. Listener feedback number 66. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by GoToMeeting. Picture yourself on a phone call sharing and explaining something visual with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things security-oriented with Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Hey, Leo. I'm great. I'm glad to be with you uh, once again for week number 196. Oh, you just love rubbing that in, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> never never missed an episode. In fact, we were just talking before the show began. I'm going to China in uh, July, and Steve's already arranging for... Uh, pre-records to get ahead so that we don't miss a single episode yep and uh you gave me the option of have, having uh, i guess alex Lindsay. yeah i think uh, alex is going to be here so i think we'll have alex actually do some of the shows which is kind of cool yeah but I, I i thought well you know i i don't mind having a vacation too so <laughs> if, if you're willing to double up and and we'll pre-record those then uh, you, you while you're in china i get to have a couple weeks off so, so that, that there you works go for me so the, Not that I'm going anywhere. I'm just going to – actually, I'm, speaking of Starbucks, or I am speaking of Starbucks, I broke my record on Monday. Uh, I got there at 5 a.m. I left a little after 5 p.m. What? You spent 12 hours writing little, code, huh? A little more than 12 hours of code writing. Yeah. Now, here's the real question. How many coffees is that? It's still my standard three mugs, each with two uh, short shots of espresso. Well, that's not so, so bad. It's not that much. No. A mere six shots over this, uh, 12 hours. I sort hours. of pace myself, and this, this particular <laughs> mug I love. It keeps the coffee warm for hours. So, And I they don't stuff. mind you sitting there just uh, beavering it's away so while you're... It's strange. I mean, the model seems to encourage that. They've got... It's across from UCI, so it's sort of a study hall environment. They've got... Steady tables with electrical connections down the center. Um, we've got plugs. There's like tables on the side, all with electrical plugs, like much more closely together than they would need for their to run their own vacuum cleaner. So, I mean, it's designed to encourage people to come and plug in and hang out. Well, it's a pretty good deal because you're spending, what you know, 12, 15 bucks on coffee and you get it 12 hours of, of, of rental. Oh, it's better rental. than that, actually. It's, uh, it's too... 85. Oh, it's nothing. I think for my coffee, I get, and, and that includes two refills, uh, drip refills, which is what they qualify this as. So so that's 50 cents each. So that's in the 285. So that's my coffee for the entire time. Oh, jeez. Are you using getting a, a deal? I'm using a Starbucks card, which is registered. And as a registered Starbucks card user, you get to use the AT&T hotspot. Um, for free. Really? And so oh, so I you're getting did, your Wi-Fi for free, too. I disconnected. Yeah, that's a, there's an up and a downside, though. There's one guy who shows up that um, uh, whenever he's there with his laptop, the whole network just collapses. 
And I've got a feeling he's running BitTorrent or, you know, so he's doing torrent downloads. He's probably comes to the hotspot in order to be anonymous. <laughs> right. And he's sucking down, you know. Oh, great. Who knows what? So that's a bit of a problem. But, uh, you know, again, it's, you know, unfortunately it's free, so it doesn't weed out anybody. But uh, but overall, it's it's effective. And so and what I'm doing doesn't need much connectivity. Mostly I'm, you know, in my own environment, uh, you know, writing assembly language and uh, I'm having a great time. Oh, that's so much fun. And I'm sure they like having some cool coder in there plugging away at his assembly. People peer over the screen and go, ooh, ooh. I don't well, know. I don't know this, what move and load they, mean, they, but that seems serious. Northgate OmniKey, uh, you know, old school keyboard. It's like, what the <laughs> heck are you doing? It's like, oh, well, a couple of people is, asked me, UCI is UC Irvine. Yep. It's the University and of in California. Fact, we had a listener come by, uh, I think no. it was Monday also. And he said, are you Steve Gibson? I said, I am. He said, I love the podcast. So oh, he heard me talking about me being at the Starbucks across from UCI and the keyboard. And he said, okay. That's got to be the guy. So oh, that's hysterical. Yeah, how many people? How many people in that Starbucks with a Northgate keyboard? Uh, that would be zero. Well, that, that would be one. <laughs> you. Yeah. So uh, we're yeah, going to. Uh, in fact, um, Elaine was curious about the keyboard, and uh, well, actually, actually, it was she was googling in order to get the spelling to see whether the K of Omni Key should be capitalized, and she found one on eBay for one hundred and fifty dollars. Wow. You know, I so think they, somebody sent me an email saying they still make them. There, well, there's there there's a company. Oh, it's uh, three initials. I can't think of the name of it, but yes, they're they're still around. They're a little clankier feeling. They're like a little kind of hollow. But one of the you know she she mentioned that for example all of the all of the um, lettering on her key tops has long since worn off. <laughs> and you know my keyboard, these keyboards are from back in the day when they were so-called two-shot injected, where the the coloring is actually plastic that is injection molded up through an opening in the shape of the letter on the top surface. So, I mean, you can't rub these off until you, like, you know, wear the key down to its post, on, on, you know, down, down below it. So wow. They were really made. They were really made right. Yeah. So you don't that that put the company out of business because nobody yeah. needed a second one. <laughs> I've been putting my keyboards in the dishwasher. I don't know if that at Northgate would stand up to that. How do you clean it? Do you do you actually pry it apart and clean it? Yeah, it does acquire a distressing yeah. level of yeah. like strange mm, yeah. hair and mm. and skin cells okay. and stuff. Like okay, <laughs> I don't really. So, yeah, so I so every you know decade or so, whether it needs it or not. <laughs> Whether it needs it or not, I open, it I open it up and, you know, get a brush out and clean all the gunk. And it's just good to go after that. You probably wouldn't want to put it in the dishwasher only because uh, it's about a 50-50 proposition whether the keyboard survives. Well, you know, my, Greg, my illustrious tech support guy, as we were shutting things down and getting back into all of us, you know, telecommuting and working at home, we had this stack of keyboards from all the employees I used to have. I, they wandered off. I kept their keyboards. And uh, I said, Greg, I, I'd like you to, you know, go through and clean all these keyboards because he had time and and bag them up and then I want them. <laughs> and so I literally have an inventory of clean as new oh. keyboards. And they're all Northgates? They're, they're all Northgate OmniKey oh. 102. Oh, you're set. You're set well, for I'm life. Baby. You got a lifetime I'm, supply. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still using my original one. I mean, they don't die. So... Yeah, so all my machines have them, and now Starbucks does too. 
<laughs> you should see if you can leave it behind the counter. <laughs> well, what I'm doing there, there's one one piece I want to make sure. Well, it only goes. Yeah, I, I leave it in the trunk of the car, so oh, I, right. I'm not having to schlep it around too much. But right now, of course, it's the old style PC barrel connector, which was that large five pin DIN connector. That then has a dongle to convert it to the PS2 that has then a dongle to convert it to USB. And what I'm going to do, as soon as I settle on this, there's one keyboard that I've got on order, which is the original so-called buckling spring IBM keyboard. I just want to make sure that's not better. I don't think it is, but I want to make sure because I'm then going to build all the conversion electronics into the keyboard, converting it into a USB keyboard. So it simply has a female USB connector on the back. And I've got a little 12-inch, short little pigtail, you know, USB dongle that'll go from keyboard to the tablet PC. So I'm working on really, you know, getting this refined. I have a feeling this is going to be a, a mode I stay in for a while. I love it. I think it's great. That's how people should work, I think, in coffee houses. That's the best place to program. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a huge amount of work done. And the DNS benchmark is really coming along nicely. Oh, that's so fun. How cool. We'll be talking about it soon. Pretty soon he'll be giving... Um, <laughs> He'll be giving lessons, <laughs> programming classes <laughs> to the UCI students in the Starbucks. It'll become like the uh, the uh, the the Greek uh, uh, what do they call it the sto- Stora Stoia, the uh, where they where Aristotle and Socrates would hold court. Right. right. Coming up in just a little bit, your questions and Steve's answers. It's our listener feedback episode. Twelve questions, good and true, and all a bunch of errata and other good tidbits. Oh, good. All right. Yep, we got a lot. Uh, and news uh, as well. But before we get to all of that, I want to mention our friends at Citrix, the folks who do the GoToMeeting program. Uh, you've heard me talk about GoToMeeting before. This is a good time to consider GoToMeeting. Anytime you've got a phone call that needs some visual element, you know, uh, you want to show a spreadsheet or a picture, maybe you have a PowerPoint presentation. It's so frustrating when you're on a conference call and you can't show that. You try to describe it. The call lasts longer than it needs to. People are not engaged. A picture is worth a thousand words. That's why GoToMeeting is such a great idea. But people can see what you are talking about. You can hold an online meeting with anybody, anywhere, schedule it in advance or on the fly. All you have to do is install GoToMeeting, and that's just a couple of clicks of the mouse. And you can do it right now for free. Just go to GoToMeeting.com slash security now. GoToMeeting.com slash security now. Before I'm done talking, you'll have it installed. It's that fast. Uh, downloads it just real quickly. You don't have to configure the router. It does NAT traversal. It's 128-bit encrypted point-to-point, so you don't have to worry about security. And the beauty of it is, you know, you're talking to somebody on the phone. You say, look, you got to see this. Go to gotomeeting.com. Here's the meeting ID. You click the mouse while they're entering in the URL. It takes about that long. And they're seeing your screen. They're seeing the PowerPoint. They're, they're following along as you move through pages or applications or you highlight numbers. You can even say, well, you know, let's see what you think. And they can collaborate. They can actually run those programs on your machine remotely. You can even give control over to them. They can run it there. It's pretty amazing. I want you to try it free for 30 days. Go to meeting.com slash security. Now, the folks at Citrix really know their stuff. They know how to make a great product. Never been a security problem. It's 128-bit SSL encrypted. We know about SSL from last week. This is a good solution for anybody who wants to do online meetings, who wants to travel less, get more done, get more engaged. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. 
All right, Steve. First, I guess we should cover any uh, any news. Yep. We've got a bunch of news. Uh, this is, of course, our podcast after the second Tuesday of May. So we've got Microsoft's standard whoops uh, list of goodies. The <laughs> most important one uh, is a critical remote code execution vulnerability in PowerPoint, which um, I think we might have talked about last week. Um, it was known. Uh, now it's been patched. So they've got this one patched as well. Um, I also think I noted, but I'll remind people that um, IE8 is now being offered through Microsoft Update. So, you know, it's checked by default. Microsoft is encouraging everyone to download it. And if you've got your Windows Update set to just, you know, accept everything that Microsoft provides without question, then, you know, you'll find you've been updated to IE8 (laughs) behind your back without your knowledge. I don't have, I always go for, you know, notify me, but don't download. Then I go into custom mode in Win, in Microsoft Update or Windows Update so I can see what I'm doing. Um, I've actually had problems in the past where updates have been offered that were not compatible with my hardware, like you know, on various laptops, and they it messed things up badly. And so it's definitely not something that you necessarily just want to, you know, that, that every user uh, certainly, the more informed user just wants to accept it blindly, and then and then the third thing they're doing is we've got the the um, standard we- monthly MSRT, the Microsoft uh, Software Removal Tool update. Um, so that's been added, and you know now that you've got after this process a new version of that, you might consider doing a deep scan of your system since it's it's got it's a month more current and. You know, hope it doesn't find anything new that it didn't know about a month ago, but it's always worth. So you do that every time. Doesn't it do it when you download it anyway? You do it. It does a scan. No, not the whole deep scan. It does Ah. sort of a cursory, quick sort of in the background scan as you're booting. It's, it's, It's the next time you boot that it does it. And, you know, not surprisingly, most of these patches require you to do a reboot. So it takes that opportunity to sort of scan on the way back into the system. And you may notice sometimes that Windows seems to be starting a lot more slowly after an update. Um, that's one of the things that's going on back there. But, mm. you know, the deep scan is hours, and you definitely know if that was going on because, I mean, it takes as much of your system as it can and for, for hours. So it's the kind of thing where... You know, you could do it before you go to China, Leo. That'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> to all my machines. But you do it every time, every second Tuesday. After no. You get, no. No. I'm just suggesting that, I mean, for example, I don't run AV either. So I'm really not. The, You're the bad the, example. Yeah. I'm not the person yeah. I'm talking to. Yeah. But there are lots of people who like to scan their systems. This is there. It's free. It's useful and, and good. And you got a new one on the second Tuesday. So uh, I would say go for it. I'll do it before I, I, uh, I, I'll do it before I go home tonight, maybe. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, then then it'll be done in the morning. Um, Google had a a little bit of a trip over their own foot update. They updated Chrome to fix a, a critical graphics integer divide overflow rendering flaw, um, taking Chrome to 1.0.154.64 and they didn't do it right. There were a bunch of problems relating to that, so they went to dot six five two days later. Um, it's stable now, so if we've got Chrome users, uh, you may want to verify that you're running the one five four dot six four version. If not, I'm sorry, dot six five version. If not, 
um, you may want to update yourself to to fix a problem there. And the Mac had one of the largest wads uh, <laughs> that I've ever seen it download. In fact, frankly, I, I was concerned here as the clock was ticking that I wasn't going to be online with you, Leo, in time because this thing just it took a long time. It was half a gig download. Wow! And then when it, the whole like restarting, hold on a second, I'm doing stuff phase. It just went on and on and on. And but I guess you have some information about that. Yeah, it uh, it is the biggest uh, update according to people who watch this thing ever uh, for OS 10. It, it, it depends if you got the standalone one that you know works on all Macs. You could, which probably if you had more than one Mac, it'd be prudent to get that and just install it locally. That was over 700 megabytes, Ooh-hoo. and then the almost 500 megabytes for the download that's specific to your machine. That would that would vary. Over sixteen thousand files changed, or thirteen thousand files changed. Thirteen thousand <laughs> file changes. Yeah, that's according to uh, to a guy who apparently. Yeah, you, the interesting thing is, unlike Microsoft, Apple is not very forthcoming about what's in these updates. So uh, there's a guy who actually goes through the what they call the bomb file, the archive. <laughs> he was file. busy this time. Yeah, he had quite a bit, and then he does. I think he even compares, you know, what's been changed and so forth. Um, and he does this, he does this, uh, and, and publishes his results, uh, in Macworld magazine. Um, Rob Griffiths, great guy. Uh, and I guess he just, this is his job in life. And he gives you a list of all the files that are changed. Sometimes version numbers change. Sometimes they don't, but it's pretty much everything, including quite a bit of Unix software. Remember that the Mac is running, uh, BSD and has many, many, many BSD programs, including Apache, uh, Perl and Python, Ruby. All of those were updated. Uh, so PHP, uh, X11 was updated. So, you know, they don't just have to update their own stuff. They have to update also a lot of open source software. There was a critical vulnerability that they fixed specifically in uh, PDF printing. Uh, there was a JBIG2 token rendering problem oh, that, was, okay. that was part of this. So that, so that was one thing. And obviously they just sort of brought a whole bunch of other stuff probably up to current level essentially. Yeah. I think they, you know, they don't have a second Tuesday policy. Um, what they do, it's interesting, actually, their, their process is very different from Microsoft's. They treat it almost like a new operating system update. They beta test it. They send it out to developers. Uh, uh, so they, they, they beta test in public with these things. Uh, if you're, you know, you have to be a developer and, uh, and then after a month or so, they will release these massive updates from time to time. They'll do small updates. But these these dot updates, these point updates, ten point five point two, ten point five point three. This case, ten point five point seven. Right. Um, these are pretty big updates, and often do do uh, modify quite a few files. This is a big Cer- one, certainly in this case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, wow. a bunch a bunch of readers uh, wrote to me about a story that ran on the San Jose Mercury News. Um, since it's it's a topic near and dear to our hearts, i.e., the Conficker worm. Um, I wanted to just read it. It's brief. Uh, it was posted by or, or uh, reported by Elise Ackerman for the San Jose Mercury News. Um, the, the subject or the title of the story was Conficker Worm Found in Hospital Equipment. Oh, dear. A computer worm that has alarmed security experts around the world yeah, has crawled into hundreds of medical devices at dozens of hospitals in the United States and other countries, according to technologists monitoring the threat. The worm known as Conficker has not harmed any patients, they say, but it poses a potential threat to hospital operations. Quote, a few weeks ago, 
we discovered medical devices, MRI machines, infected with Confocur, said Marcus Sachs, director of the Internet Storm Center, an early warning system for Internet threats. Around March 24th, researchers monitoring the worm noticed that an imaging machine was reaching out over the Internet to get instructions, presumably from the programmers who created Confocur. The researchers discovered that more than 300 similar devices at hospitals around the world had been compromised. The manufacturer of the devices told them none of the machines were supposed to be connected to the Internet, Ugh. and yet they were. Yeah. Normally, the solution would be simply to install a patch, which Microsoft released in October. But the device manufacturer said rules from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration required that a 90-day notice before the machines required a 90-day notice before the machines could be patched. Quote, for 90 days, these infected machines could easily be used in an attack, including, for example, the leaking of patient information, said Rodney Jaffe, a senior vice president at the New Star, a communications company that belongs to an industry working group related to dealing with the worm. So that's interesting uh, just, that they have that weird requirement. Well, and so here you have a situation where clearly Windows, I mean, okay, we, <laughs> I, 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 should, I should tell our readers in advance that this, this Q&A, as, as our Q&As sometimes do, has a theme to it because there was so much listener response to the issue of in instances of Windows being embedded in things that a lot of listeners have personal direct experience of one form or another, pro and con, with this behavior so or this practice so some of you know that there there's maybe half of our of our 12 questions are people telling us interesting things and asking questions so i think it'll be you know that'll you know listeners will hear that sort of theme well you know this report is exactly that more than 300 mri imaging machines based on windows got themselves infected because a they were based on Windows. That is, you know, if, if they were based on some some in industry standard operating system rather than the consumer operating system, that couldn't have happened. And clearly the manufacturer says, oh, well, you weren't supposed to connect to the Internet. Well, I guess my question is, what does it have, a, a standalone box standing next to the <laughs> scanner? I mean, don't give it an, an Ethernet adapter. Don't install Ethernet drivers. Or, or is it a, some just standard installation of Windows? I mean, I, anyway, uh, I could go on. And I'm, we've already discussed that. We'll be discussing it more throughout this next hour. So um, I'll let that stand. But, yes, that's certainly a problem. Wow. Very interesting stuff. Also, we had a ton of, inf of, of people wanting to make sure that I knew about the controversy of NoScript versus Adblock Plus. You know, I almost mentioned that last week, but, uh, well, I'll let you tell the story. No script, um, no script responded, I think, appropriately. So, um, Yeah, and I, I read the Adblock Plus posting, which I felt was very well written, even-handed, not being out of control. We discussed previously this fundamental problem of an ecosystem, which I so much like. In Firefox, I mean, it happens that I'm using both 
no script and adblock plus mm -hmm. adblock plus with the easy list just deals with advertisements it's it's amazing when i go to a machine now that isn't using firefox with adblock plus it's everything's jumping around and stuff's happening and it's like whoa i forgot what you know how peaceful things could be if you used adblock plus along with firefox um, and of course i i believe in in controlling scripting so there there's a fundamental problem if the interests of different add-ins conflict and if the authors of the add-ons decide to respond to that conflict the position taken by adblock plus's author is that the no script author has an advertising based revenue system and the no script technology was deliberately changed and the code even obfuscated so that it would it would resist being seen and 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 resist analysis was arranging to defeat the ad blocking for the no script site and every time you get one of these no script updates which really do seem distressingly frequent I notice that I'm, you know, given a whole big page from the NoScript site, which I have to, you know, close because it has nothing else I really care about on it. But apparently it does have ads. That's where the ads are. Exactly. And that's the only place the ads are? Um, I don't know that because I haven't, you know, dug deep into this. But I wanted to let our, our listeners know that I'm aware of this issue. And, you know, many of our listeners are really unhappy with the conduct of the NoScript author saying, you know, I, I, I want to use this, but this really puts a bad taste in my mouth. Um, it, it, so, anyway, that's the story. You read his response, though, right? No. Oh, okay. So this is, I thought this was kind of over, over uh, last week. Otherwise, I would have brought it up uh, last week. Um, so he, he actually uh, says, I screwed up big time. Okay. Not just with Adblock Plus users, but with the Mozilla community at large. I did something extremely wrong, which I regret forever. I abused the power uh, and wasted the enormous trust capital gained by the NoScript add-on through the years to prevent Adblock Plus from blocking stuff on foreign or domains of mine without asking an explicit preemptive user consent. This is absolutely inexcusable. Something I would never conceive again for the life of me. Please let me apologize first. He responds to Vladimir's uh, post... Uh, says it's not quite as Vladimir said, uh, and he uh, he says he's changing it. So to to be fair, um, he really did. He accepted responsibility yeah. and he apologized. And and also Vladimir's follow on postings did refer to responses back from you know the no script you know um, uh, author. So. Yeah. Good. So, but uh, I would say lesson learned. Yeah, I think lesson learned. I think that he has come up with a solution. Um, he realizes <clears throat> it was inappropriate to do what he was doing. Um, but there has been a back and forth dialogue between uh, him and Vladimir. And, um, you know, he, I mean, I, I, he said, I, I, I did not obfuscate code. I mean, he's he, in his defense. He said some things. So it's not it's not completely uh, one sided. I would say read. You know, go to go to his hackademics.net site, read Giorgio's responses. And uh, give him him as full yeah. a an opportunity to explain himself. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think these are I my general gist of it uh, uh, after reading the back and forth is that both people are well-meaning. Uh, Giorgio realizes he made a mistake and uh, and I think he's going to fix it to the satisfaction of everybody involved. Great. Great. Um, I've been, as I've mentioned a number of times, I have sort of a, a background thread running uh, relative to my plans for my next major commercial product, which, as we know, is called CryptoLink. Uh, the, I've got the trademark on that now, so that, it doesn't hurt to, to mention that. Um, one of the things that I run across is this question of what mode I'm going, CryptoLink is going to use for doing its ciphering and authentication. We've talked about modes, uh, for example, cipher block chaining, CBC, is a mode where you take the result of the one of, of, of the first cryptographic operation and you XOR that with the plain text of the second block's worth of text before you encipher it. You take that and you XOR that with the third blocks and so forth so that it forms a chain running down through. What that does is it makes all the blocks dependent upon everything that has come before and for example, is a, is a much stronger solution than if you independently were to encrypt each block by itself because you could then, a bad guy could change something and there would be no rippling effect. It would be an isolated change. Also, any, um, more, and more significantly, any patterns that were occurring in the plain text could be seen very clearly because the, the um, patterns occurring anywhere would would be replicated in the enciphered blocks, even though you wouldn't know what they what, what what the plain text was. The fact that it wasn't changing gives you information, and that's a bad idea. So these modes take the basic cryptographic operations and and make them a little more complicated. Well, the the problem is all that does, for example, cipher block chaining, is give you um, uh, privacy through encryption. It does not give you authentication. So what everyone does is, for example, you have CBC. Then, for example, there's CBC MAC, which is to say methods, method, message authentication code, where you, with a different key, and that's important. We know that you can't use the same key, or you shouldn't, for ciphering and for authenticating. And that's one of the mistakes that the early versions of SSL used, and, and that got fixed in later versions. Um, so if you want to authenticate, you use a different key and you often do the whole thing again. But for example, using CBC to create a, ha a, a, a as your cipher for a hash. And so you hash the message with a different key. What this means is that you're essentially doubling the amount of work you have to do. Well, there's one very cool mode, which is called OCB which was uh, invented by um, a cryptographer, Philip Rogaway, um, who's at UC Davis. Um, I wrote to Philip in February, so a little over three months ago, asking him what the terms of licensing were. His site says this is licensed, it's proprietary, it's patented, um, but we you know, will make licenses available. I never heard anything from him, so yesterday... I remembered that you know I'd let that ball drop, so I sent him a short note just saying, "Hey, um, I'm just kind of wondering if I could hear something one way or the other. 
Um, you know, a lot depends upon whether I could use this. I, 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 I just realized I forgot to tell you why this is so cool. OCB does both of both privacy, that is to say encryption and authentication in a single pass with like one additional block operation at the end rather than doubling the number of block operations that you need. So it's like twice as efficient as any of the existing technologies. Um, anyway, I re- received a response this time um, from Philip with like, like within an hour. He said, hey, Steve, great to hear from you. Um, you can use OCB for free oh. now and forever in oh. any future versions for your CryptoLink VPN. Oh, that's great. He says, I have no intention of profiting from a three-man software publishing company, so um, it's yours. He just wants to protect against the big boys. Yes, exactly. Understandably. And, I mean, who can blame him? I mean, yeah. I'm, so I'm just delighted because this, even though, you know, it's all going to be assembly language and mine would have been as fast as anybody else's, now it gets to be twice as fast. So oh, that's, that's a cool thing, too. That's really great. And I did want to make a mention, again, responding to all the email that we receive, um, that I'm aware that my little freeware Securable has been mentioned all over the place uh, in connection with Windows 7 because there's been a lot of question about what processor capabilities you have. Windows 7 cares about whether you've got the the advanced uh, virtualization capabilities in your chip, yet it's not easy to know one way or the other whether you do. And of course, our listeners will remember that that's exactly what Securable tells you, is it makes, you know, you just run it and bang, it shows you a little presentation of what features your chip has. So it's been picked up by PC World and and Tech Republic and, you know, all over the net. People have been saying, hey, just go get Securable. And no downloads have spiked as a consequence of that. So I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew that that I knew that had happened. Um, I wanted to correct a, a something I, I misstated about the Kindle DX. I, I referred to its, its pixel pitch as being higher than the prior two Kindles. And in fact, it's a little bit lower. Oh, it's lower. Okay. Now the, the total resolution is higher. Right. In fact, nicely higher, but the actual dot pitch, that is the, the, the spacing between individual pixels is a little lower. On the on the first two Kindles, the original Kindle and Kindle 2, it's 167 dots per inch to yield a screen resolution of 800 by 600 at that, at that pitch. On the DX, it's 150 pixels per inch. Um, on the other hand, the screen, because it's physically larger ends up at 1200 by 824 and 1200 by 824 is very respectable resolution you know the 1200 by 824 1200 yeah that's bigger of, than a you know VGA screen exactly well think about many laptops that are 1024 by 768 1024 by 768 is a standard laptop screen right. resolution so this is more pixels in each direction and it's a physically smaller screen than your typical laptop screen at 1024768. So the actual, you know, the actual visible resolution ends up being higher. So I've got high hopes for it being, you know, a nice screen for for uh, viewing PDFs. 
And it does have a rotation sensor in it, and it will go into portrait mode. So you get the advantage. I'm not. It'll be interesting to see how they handle that because you can't scroll e-ink. So if you switch it into portrait mode, I'm sorry, I meant landscape mode. If you switch it into landscape mode, so that you get the whole width of this, the you know the, what would normally be the height of the screen becomes the width of the screen to get you know even greater resolution. You'd have to do a paging operation, you know, to to move up the screen, which actually uh, one writer or reviewer wondered why they weren't doing columns, like they weren't doing multi-column text. Well, you really don't want multi-column text in a situation where you can't easily scroll because then you'd get down to the bottom of one column and you'd have to scroll back right. to the top of the same page in order to start reading from the top of the se- of, 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 of another column. So it makes sense that they've, they've stretched it all the way across. So anyway, uh, we won't really know much more until I get mine, and, uh, and then we will. Yeah. And, and you may get yours look. someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometime not, not imminent. Yeah. Um, and I did want to mention that a a, um, a a guy posting to our news groups this morning noted something disturbing about his D-Link router firmware update, um, and that is that that D-Link is is now going to begin. They haven't yet actually started yet, but they're going to begin taking over DNS. Um, by default, and that's something I really think crosses the line, especially when the DNS that they're going to be routing people to is that kind which doesn't give you an error message, but instead gives you their own helpful, friendly, marketing-driven interception page. They say, we're providing search engine services for our customers, Turns out that it's a some sort of a direct marketing company that they're using. Um, so not, it's not far- Open DNS. It's some some other weird. Because I'm a, yeah, I'm a big fan of Open DNS. I could even see maybe putting in in the D-Link router by default. Well, I'm not a fan of anything that doesn't give you an error. And Open DNS does not give you an error. No, Open DNS takes you to their own. Yeah, you know, that's how page. they monetize exactly. I mean, they say yeah. it's an error. But they say perhaps you meant this, and there's some ads there. It's a search well, page. Well, uh, no, I mean, when an error means something specific. An error means that you receive an a a um an a bad name error response in response to a query at the DNS level. It does not mean that your browser receives a happy page of other links. And so you know that breaks that breaks DNS. That this is fundamentally broken. I understand they're monetizing, and I'm being a curmudgeon about it. But I mean, you 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 ask for a name that doesn't exist, you should get an error. You should not be be given an IP that will satisfy your request by taking you to a page for marketing purposes. Yeah, well, you certainly shouldn't do that without. Most users of D-Link routers won't know that that's what's happening. This will Precisely. this will be the new default behavior. I don't have so much of a problem if people choose to use OpenDS and DNS, and in fact, no. I recommend it. No, and in fact, you do need to deliberately configure your system to do that. Right. And and right. I agree. I think it provides lots of good services so long as the user understands. Yeah, you did it what yourself, and and there, and this is a, a conscious choice. Problem is putting it in the router. Most people don't ever change the router settings. Well, and what's really become annoying, and we'll be talking about this in the future when we're talking about DNS performance, as I will be. When we talk about this benchmark that I'm in, in the final throws of, although well, I've been in those final throws for some time, I realize, but it's coming out pretty spectacular. Um, it turns out that many routers are not 
forwarding the ISP's provided DNS services to the computer. Instead, they're saying, I'm your DNS server, and then they're they're so they're intercepting your your computers or your whole LAN's DNS queries and and managing them themselves. The problem is it uh, it turns out that this is being done poorly. It's often slower than asking the actual DNS servers that your ISP is providing. And in some cases, it creates a security vulnerability because some replies can crash your router. And there may be buffer overrun possibilities there. So, you know, when you say, when you set your computer to obtain IP address automatically, what you traditionally received was an, an, a, a local IP from the router and, or, and for any machines on the network, and then you received the router basically resending, rebroadcasting the, uh, the DNS servers that it had received from the ISP so that your computer would be making queries to those DNS servers. Now the router is saying is, is, is giving its own gateway IP as also the, the DNS IP, the single DNS IP for the whole network. The other, pro- the other reason this is a problem is that DNS is pretty fancy about how it falls back in the event of a, of, a, of a server being down. The reason there's typically a minimum of two DNS servers being listed, I mean, the, the formal reason is if one is down, you've, you've, you can fall back to the other. Because if you've got neither, you don't really have the Internet. You know, unless you're really good with memorizing IP addresses, and you know, none of us, <laughs> none of us do that. So, who knows how good the error handling logic is in the router, which you're now depending upon if you only have one IP address, and that's the router's IP. So, I'm I'm a little bit down on this whole notion, and unfortunately, this is the default setting. And so, what we're learning as we actually have really accurate benchmark results is that. Changing your router and telling it, do not proxy my DNS, is going to be probably the recommended setting. Um, and it also solves some potential security vulnerabilities, which we're, we're finding and discovering in a, in a surprising number of routers. Very cool. And lastly... I mean, not I cool, to, but very good to know. Yes. <laughs> cool is the wrong word. <laughs> uh, and lastly, in the spirit of our Q&A, I actually have a question from a Spinrite user that I would share because it's, it's it's an interesting one. He said, Steve, I've been using Spinrite a lot at work with a four-copy site license. Thanks. To both recover corrupt drives and files as well as maintenance on drives. My question is, after running Spinrite level four on a drive, is the drive safe to use? One Western Digital drive of 500 gig SATA was giving us errors and trouble. So I ran Spinrite at level two it fully recovered a bunch of sectors. After that, I was able to get all the data off that I needed. And then I ran Spinrite again at level four. No bad sectors the second time, some ECC corrections, but I don't know what is common or too many. Is this drive safe to use and trust again, or should I just toss it? Thanks for the great podcast and great product, Nathaniel. Very um, cool. Very cool. That's cool. <laughs> Nathaniel L. in Minneapolis. Um, yeah. And you know, that's a really good question to, to which I don't really have a hard and fast answer. Um, I would say no drive should ever produce an error like Spinrite always finds. Um, so 
that's never a good thing. Um, on the other hand, it's difficult to blame the drive if if there hasn't been maintenance going on. I mean, Spinrite is maintenance. You run Spinrite on a drive, and it's able to show the drive that there are sectors that are going bad before they have gone bad. And that's that's a critical distinction because because you know there's so these drives are so dense now then and they're doing they're relying so heavily on error correction to fix reads which are not perfect that it that a lot of error correction is going on all the time it's when too much is required more than the drive has that it says i can't read this sector which is then when you bring spinrite in and it gets it for you so if maintenance were going on then this would probably have never gotten as bad as it had. Um, but maintenance isn't being done on most drives because most drives don't have spin right being run on them all the time. Only people you know, who are clued into this understand that. So I would say keep an eye on the drive. If you, if you have some way of like maybe putting it in a less mission-critical place, like make it a drive in a raid array so that if it goes belly up, you've got re- redundancy and you're not relying on it completely. If I, I would say maybe store less mission critical data on it, or if nothing else, make sure that you do run Spinrite over it from time to time and kind of keep an eye on it. Um, in on the smart disp- display screen, Spinrite is showing you dynamically the rate at which error corrections are being required, even behind the scenes. Something that nothing else shows you. The actual rate in terms of corrections per megabyte read. And if you see that in general going up over time, then then the drive is, I mean, Spinrite is more sensitive early warning device than anything I've ever seen because it's able to show you the rate at which error corrections, which are still fine, are being relied upon by the drive as it goes about doing its its work under Spinrite. So if that makes a jump or a change, or if it's high compared to other drives of the same make and model. That's the other thing you can do is if you have other Western Digital drives, see what their ECC rate are as shown by Spinrite when it's running. And if you've got a drive that's like like way off bell curve, it's like, okay, this really does seem like it's an early warning for a, a pending problem. Yeah. Well, it's you know it's nice that people have this option to write into you and ask the author, uh, you know what's going on and what you suggest. I think that's a great. I've always had that uh, feedback from you, but it's nice the others can do it too. Yeah, go to grc.com/slash/feedback if you have uh, questions for Steve. We're going to get to twelve really good ones in just a second from the Security Now listening audience. But uh, before we do that, I do want to mention our friends at Nerds On Site. I want to be a nerd.com. That's the website to go to for nerds on site. You know about nerds on site, I hope, by now. They're a team of IT professionals and they're looking for new nerds, people with competencies and skills in pretty much any area of IT, whether it's fix it technicians, website designers, if you're a programmer, a project manager, even sales trainers, security experts, of course, antivirus gurus. Uh, Especially for nerds, uh, they're looking for nerds who are solution-focused in today's small and medium enterprises. It's the really the, the, the last big growing market sector, and they need lots of nerds in that area. Whether it's PC or Mac, Cisco or Oracle, 
Find out more. You're, you remain an independent contractor. You're in business for yourself, but you're not by yourself. They help you, and that's the key. You focus on what you love to do, not the burdens of running a business. In eight countries now, they're spreading fast. Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and India. To find out more, go to a nerds-only meeting in your neighborhood. It's IWantToBeANerd.com. That's the website. I want to be a nerd.com. Uh, you also get advantage, get to take advantage of their University of Nerdology, which uh, gives you a, a chance to brush up your competencies or learn new skills. Things like the Astaro Security Gateway System, architecture design, software development. It's a lot of fun being a nerd. Check it out right now. Nerds on site. I want to be a nerd.com. We thank them so much for their support of security now leo i think you probably already qualified. I, I don't think i i think when they say that they know that anybody who wants to do this is already a nerd it's like you want to be a part of nerds on site is what they I mean, have I long think. been a nerd <laughs> i'm i'm a nerd i'm still a nerd <laughs> always been a nerd hey by the way uh colleen handed me uh, a keyboard she found that has buckling springs that's what makes your north gate so good right well no um maybe I know that the the what was called buckling spring keyboard was the original keyboard from the IBM PC. Right. The and Model a, M. Yep. A very stiff response. I, I joked in, in InfoWorld columns that you could you could you know like load up a spitball in the curve of one of the keys and like let it go and the spitball would get shot across the room because I mean it really you know or, or, or I, think, I think I remember once saying that it would bruise your fingertips if you didn't pull them away quickly enough. Because as soon as it wanted to snap back, I mean, it really did with a vengeance. I think that's too stiff. I think that's more than I want. So these aren't buckling springs in your North Gate. Well, I I don't know what the technology is. I know that... That's what Dvorak has always said. But, you know, who knows? Well, you know, I'm really careful about technology or terminology. And and I know that the, the original IBM keyboard was known as the buckling spring keyboard. Right. And And they're still available. I ordered one. And then they told me, oh, by the way, it's going to be maybe two or three weeks. So I'm still waiting for it. I think I'm not going to like it. And I'll probably have to, you know, put earplugs on in order to use it. I, mine are definitely, they have a nice snap action. They're not that, you know, the the rubber sheet dimples that you're typing on, which is what all right. temporary keyboards are. The mushy ones. Um, That's actually, I have to use those because the other ones are too noisy. Yes. And I, they really I, clickety-clack. I can't use them on the air. Yes, and in fact, you know, I've got this in front of me, and I've been conscious sometimes when 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 you're talking, and I'm I have to there's something I have to do. It's like, ooh, I'm when I type on this quietly somehow because yeah, yeah. I don't want it to get recorded. Yeah. Um. Well, anyway, she made she made a mention of it. It's it's the Das keyboard. It's from Germany, D A S, using the buckling spring. So people are looking for that. And do you have the keyboard in front of you right there? I don't. She, okay, she so, just, so she you're not able to it. press the key right now. And I can't oh, tell you. I just yeah. remember. I just remember the company. It was it's CVT is the company that still makes the equivalent of the Northgate keyboard, sort of modernized, and they've like got some built-in macro programming and some other stuff. So, but it's CVT Inc. I think is the name of the company, and CVT. I have purchased a couple from them, um, and they were they didn't quite have exactly the same feel. I mean, I'm being really picky at this point, but. But yeah, I think that's the that's the name that of the group. That I still also makes I bought one um, for the Mac. Oh, oh yes, exactly. There was one for I have I have one also. Yeah, it is it is a, again. It's it's a nice I like snappy. It. 
Yes. And it washed well in the dishwasher. <laughs> But it's uh, but it's too noisy. It's clickety clack, yes. and I had to retire it. I uh, you know the the new Apple keyboards. You know their membranes because they're this thin. They're aluminum. Oh, it's uh, like ty- typing on a piece of paper. Yeah, I've washed two oh. of those. One made it, one didn't. So <laughs> you you what is this washing you're doing? This? Well, you know, with the swine flu, you know, the keyboard is filthy. It's okay. filthy. Who, you have you have a lot of people sitting on your ball. I do. Oh. Uh, we have because uh, Colleen comes in here. Uh, Sarah comes in here. Uh, Alex does, and um, uh, a few other people have u- or used this. So I feel guilty having them sit down in front of my grungy keyboard. I am actually using now something Leo. called the Silver Seal Antimicrobial Keyboard. Get, it is designed sh- <laughs> designed to put in the a, dishwasher. It's for hospitals. A, get a guest keyboard and just put Maybe a that's big, what I'll put do. a Leo sticker. Put your name on yours and get a guest keyboard and just you know swap it out Maybe that's when, what I'll any, do. when you're going to be away from your desk. <laughs> Or actually, since, since they're USB, you can probably leave them both plugged in and just yeah, sort you of can, yeah. slide one aside and say, okay, don't, this one's don't got, touch you know, got Chinese food all over it. So just try not to, <laughs> don't use this one. Are you ready, my friend, for... Oh, I think everybody's ready. <laughs> We're 52 minutes in. And we Holy cow! Yet. All right, well, we'll speed through these. But we've had a lot of fun so far, and sure. our listeners appreciate that. So, you know, it's not just about the Q&A. No, of course not. It's never just about the Q&A. This is question number one. Comes to us from Robert Minkler in Prescott Valley, Arizona. And he says, Steve, you skipped a beat. I just finished listening to Security Now episode 195, the SSL TLS episode, for the fourth time. Holy cow. Yeah, that was a pretty information-dense episode yeah, last week. So. Yeah, I admire people who really just keep going through it till they get it. Don't forget the transcripts, because that helps. It's a great episode. As usual, you make a very complex topic easy to understand. It seems like you missed an important detail of the handshake process, though. See, I wouldn't have noticed that. Yeah, I did afterwards, too. You mentioned what happens if the session details are already in the cache of both machines during the handshake. You never said exactly what happens when the two machines need to create and exchange a new symmetric key. I know you discussed symmetric key exchange in a previous episode, but it seems like you should have mentioned that again. So, here's a chance. How exactly do both machines end up with the same symmetric key and keep it a secret? Thanks, Steve and Leo. Security Now is by far my favorite show. That's a great question. And it's funny because as I wandered off after recording last week, I thought, oh, you know, I in my notes, I just must have skipped over it because I talked about how it, when the client is connecting to the server, the client, if it sees that it has credentials, which had been established from a prior connection still in its cache, it offers the the session ID of those credentials to the server. If the server is configured to to allow reusing of existing um, credentials, and if it still has them, and if it chooses to, it will respond with the session ID come you know right back to the client telling the client yes let's use the session id that you've suggested and implying the use of the same credentials at that point i moved past that to other topics but the question that that robert asks and i should say that a number of other listeners who were really listening carefully say wait wait whoa, whoa, whoa. what if there isn't a prior session what is this if there's first connection to this server in 24 hours or whatever the cache expiration time is which is never longer than 24 hours um, and they're right. I forgot to mention that. It's pretty straightforward. Um, when the server um, 
gives the client its certificate. It sends the server certificate message to the client, and then it sends the so-called server hello done message. The In the case that the need to negotiate a new shared secret key, the client sends what's called the client key exchange message. What it does is it takes the version number that is it, that is its version number, which is two bytes, and generates an additional 46 bytes of cryptographically strong pseudo-randomness, creating a 48-byte um, datum. Now, from having received the server's certificate, just having received it, it has the server's public key. So it, it encrypts that 48-byte blob, which is not too long, with the server's public key. Now, as we know, the public key allows you to go in one direction. The private key, which is never disclosed, is the only thing that will let you go in the other direction. So it encrypts the server's private key. I'm, I'm sorry. It encrypts its 48 bytes of mostly randomness, but also the first two bytes are its, its own client version. And then it sends that to the server, its client key exchange message. So the fact that everybody who's monitoring this handshake process can see that doesn't help them because all they, they I mean they see 48 bytes of blob go by, but as we know, that's going to be random noise. I mean, it's encrypted random noise. Um, they can't they cannot determine what the actual plain text, the unencrypted randomness is, because they don't have the server's private key. Only the server has that. So it receives it and decrypts that using its private key. Now both ends have the same 48 bytes. The reason that client ID is tacked on the front is cleverly to protect against a client version downgrade attack. Remember that all of this so far has been in the clear. That is, the client sends its packet of information containing its version number, the, the, the ciphers and authentication codes it supports and so forth up to the server. The server looks at those, chooses among them, and sends them back. Well, it's there, it, the client is also sending this, the server a blob of random stuff. The server sends the client a blob of random stuff. This all happens in the clear. So uh, a possible attack would be to, to intercept that first that first client handshake packet that contains the client's version number and edit it down in order to, to make clients seem dumb and force the server to negotiate an older version protocol that has no weaknesses. So that's prevented by having the client again put its client version that is the best it can do as part of that 48 bytes, which is an encrypted, which, which, and of course, this is encrypted and authenticated, so nobody can change it. Then the server receives it, decrypts using its private key, as I said before, gets all 48 bytes, the first two of which are the client version. 
it compares that client version, which now that they've uh, they've got they they've got ciphering running in their connection, now it can't be spoofed, it can't be intercepted. It compares it to what the client's first claim of the version number was. If they don't match, the connection is broken. The server just drops it like a hot potato and says, no, thank you, and, and forces a, a complete restart of the negotiation. Typically, it will compare. Then what happens is they've, they've each generated some randomness in the beginning, which they sent to each other. Then the client generates another chunk of randomness. They, they each generate, um, uh, boy, I don't remember how many. I think it's 48 bytes, and they send it to each other. Then the client generates 48 bytes, which it encrypts, sends to the server, which it decrypts. They mix all of that together, the client's randomness, the server's randomness, and their shared secret, which is called actually the pre-master key. That's all mixed together using a, a common hashing function to generate the final master key, which is then used for all to, to, to generate all subsequent keys. So... That's how that's done. They then both issue a cipher change spec message to each other. And remember that that's the message that says everything henceforth will be done under the ciphers that we agreed upon using the key we've agreed upon. And then they each send the finished message, which is enciphered and authenticated using what they've agreed on. And that upon receiving that and each end verifying it, They've established their secure communication, and nobody knows of any way to get in there and mess it up. So it's a tremendously secure technology. Very cool. Question two. Marv Schwartz at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, a very good school, uh, worries about connecting to the land side of a router. Hi, Steve. Perhaps listening to every episode of Security Now has made me a paranoid. Good. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> you said that because of NAT, worms cannot cross from the Internet through the WAN side of a router to the machines on the LAN side of the router. However, if someone connects a laptop that has been infected with a worm to the LAN side of the router, then the NAT protection does not come into play and the worm will try to propagate to other machines on the LAN side of the router. Yep. And we've seen that happen with Zotob, yep. among other things. And Conficker does it, too. Yeah. When this happens, the only protection is the software in each attacked machine. Even though I keep my machine updated, the frequency of security updates, zero-day exploits, and configure scares me. So I carry a travel router with me and put it between my machine and a corporate conference or hotel land whenever I can. Is this a good idea, or am I just being paranoid? Thanks to you and Leo, a great service you provide. So many of us who do not know enough to be paranoid before becoming regular listeners did not know enough before becoming regular listeners to security now. Thank you, Marv. That's well, a that's a great question. Well, it's a great question, and one of my good friends, Mark Thompson of Analog X, uh, does that. Um, he uh, so, so, sometimes when he's visiting, he'll crash here overnight on his way up to L.A. or Burbank or wherever he's going, and he just has a little he's a little tiny D-Link travel router. It's a very cool little thing. It's like the size of like sort of a smaller even than a than a Mac uh, power supply blob. Um, it's got a little plug built in. You just sort of swing the plug out or slide it out, sort of like an electric razor, uh, you know, being deployed like, like the sideburn cutter on, on on a razor. And you just plug it into the to an outlet, and it is a complete little uh, NAT router. And so what Marv is doing is is interesting. I mean, you you could argue that 
that a properly running Windows firewall is the same thing. That is, if you've got no ports opened and exposed, then it then the Windows firewall is very much like NAT in that anything from the inside is able to get out, but nothing from the outside is able to get in. The problem is that it that Windows firewall is tricky because there's all there's like tabs in the in the advanced mode where you're able to configure exceptions, you're able to allow things. By default, LAN is treated as a trusted domain, but Marv's whole point is that a LAN shouldn't necessarily be trusted because it just takes one bad machine stuck on the LAN and one of the one of the behaviors I witnessed myself in my own little conficker honeypot here is it's sending out probes across the entire local network looking for other machines to to you know to grab onto to infect and 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 to move itself over to so so putting a if you know for People who like the idea getting a little so-called travel router, and I think everybody makes them now because it's a, it's a it's a nice idea. Running your internet connection through that gives you hard, uh, sort of, sort of hardware level protection outside of your Windows machine. That is, you know that that local software cannot configure. You want to do the right thing, of course. You want to make sure you give it a good, strong administrator. Uh, username and password, change them. You want to disable universal plug and play. Otherwise, don't bother because universal plug and play essentially disables that protection. Uh, and there's no way to, to really know what's going on. So you want to turn that off. But with that turned off, um, a little travel router makes a great, uh, basically, it's a little hardware, a little portable hardware firewall. And uh, I, that, I mean, I know people who do it. Failing that, the the next best thing would be just to turn on the Windows firewall. That would give you some protection too, right? Well, no, that's the point, is that even when it's on, it does not provide LAN protection. Well, well, no, no, wait a minute. If all the machines in the, in, the mach- in, the, in the network have the firewall turned on, you are protected. No. No. By default, Microsoft has file sharing and, and their client, uh. the, the Windows client on, and the firewall trusts the LAN. It does not. Oh, trust that's the, interesting. Oh. Yes. And so, like, if you go into because this was their recommendation after Zotab was turn on the the internal firewall yeah, and that will block enough. Zotab. But so when it sees traffic from the LAN, it says, "Ah, hey, you know, you must know what you're doing." Yeah, I mean, the LAN. It's it's your home. It's your office. It's your friends. And and and, and again, it, 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 it's interesting because there's a. So there's how a do notion- you protect yourself if I mean you you bring a fire a little router with you even to work? Um, well, you can <laughs> configure the Windows firewall so that it doesn't allow these oh, exceptions. Okay. How do but we do that? It, uh, but it, you you dig down into the tabs, and uh, I mean, I, we could certainly do a podcast to take our listeners through it step by it's step. It's probably obvious, though. You, so you turn off all the exceptions. Although uh, under each of those exceptions, you need to open it up, and you'll see that it says, you know, LAN is an exception, wow. and you're able to disable that and wow. say, "Nope, I do not want LAN Holy to be an cow. exception." I didn't realize that. So yeah, I've been not, I've been thinking I was safe using the 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 uh, turning on the Windows firewall. So not not against internal threats. They make really good little travel routers you can carry with you. You know, if you yes, they, and that's my point is that everybody makes them, and uh, and you know it it makes it a no brainer. You need to again configure it correctly. Make sure you don't leave the default username and password because we now know that malware tries oh, it does amazing. brute forcing against username and password, 
and that it'll use universal plug and play if it can. So those things you need to deal with. But but when you do, you've got quick and easy security. And the other problem is you can't ever really trust a software firewall running in the computer that you're protecting. You know, if I mean, except because because it's a bad guy has access to it. Well, but I'm you, but I'm thinking this is of use when you're sitting safe and safe and secure, and there's bad guys outside on the land. Correct, correct, and and so long as you don't click on a link that right. runs something that your browser you're screwed has if you're, if in. once you're infected, all, all bets are off. Right. I mean, uh, you know, at that point, okay, we're talking about protecting ourselves. So, okay, yeah, that's good. Okay, I, I'm gonna have to go out and get a little portable. Uh, there must be some. Because I'm going to China. I know I'm not going to. I mean, I'm going to oh, land baby. the hacker, baby. I, I know that the little D-Link, D- this little cute D-Link that Mark Thompson has is really neat. And he says, you know, I'm, I mean, he was saying, he was commenting on how much he likes it. And he said, oh, and it's also got Wi-Fi. So, so you're able to like, you know, for example, he's got WPA configured. He'll come to my house, get a hard connection to, to my mm-hmm. cable modem, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And then that's all he has to do. The router is is permanently uh, configured with his WPA key, big long key. So then the, his laptop, he's able to roam around the house and use, you know, his secure, Wi-Fi yeah. connection, his secure connection to his little travel router that is then plugged into my to my cable modem. Everything just works. So it's like zero a zero config solution. It's also very secure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I think that's a great solution. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna find one and. Uh... And of course, if it's D-Link, make sure you change the uh, DNS. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just in case. We got two listeners with the same question. Jason Russo writing through our tech support, your tech support uh, email. Yep. Uh, for grc.com, and also JD posting anonymously on the uh, security forums have comments about JavaScripts and PDFs. Jason writes, Steve, sorry if this is the wrong email. I couldn't find a good way of commenting on your podcast. Grc.com/slash/feedback. Yep, which is what I wanted to mention. Make sure our listeners know grc.com slash feedback gets to me. Just a quick comment on JavaScript in PDFs. JavaScript, in addition to Adobe's form calc, is used within interactive forms for programming logic in a PDF. This is usually used for calculating fields, input validation, etc. But it can also be used uh, to dynamically change the user interface, which is where form calc falls short. Unless Adobe abandons interactive forms, JavaScript is a necessary evil for the reader. There is a reason for it. It's just not used by most people. P.S. Love the show. Well, thank you. That's good for the, to get the clarification. J.D. adds, hi, Steve and Leo. First, let me express to you how much I appreciate your netcast. Keeps me informed and up to date on matters of Windows security. For that, I am grateful. And I subscribe to Audible because of it. Thank you, our sponsors. Thank you. Per your comments in episode 195, it appears there is a use for JavaScript and PDFs, at least according to Adobe. PDFs have the ability to have Flash content embedded inside. That, by the way, is a really neat feature. You can make, uh, you know, a, a book, a PDF that has uh, audio, video. Live things. Interactivity. Yeah. But uh, here, herein lies the risk. I've personally mm-hmm. seen a demonstration of this in the form of a Flash-based dashboard that contained data represented in the form of pretty gauges. These dashboards could then be sent to an executive or other morons for review. <laughs> They could then play with the data by adjusting graphically represented sliders and knobs to analyze the effects of the data as it's changed, keeping them busy and out of our hair. No, I'm adding that part. (laughs) Following your advice, I switched off the JavaScript and attempted to open a PDF with an embedded dashboard sent to me by a coworker. I got an error message telling me it would not display without JavaScript enabled. 
Yeah, that's one way that you embed Flash. Well, I don't want to detract from his comments. Perhaps there are others who could explain this in more detail, but I hope this sheds some light on why JavaScript might be used in a PDF. Best wishes to you and Leo. Keep up the good fight. Thank you, J.D. and Well, I appreciate it. Both of these guys. It's weird, too, Leo, because, you know, wouldn't you know, uh, shortly after I said that, I wanted to uh, submit to the state my request for uh, uh, voting by absentee ballot for this upcoming special election that we've got on May 19th. And so I went to the site and they gave me a PDF based form that had auto fill in stuff. And. It didn't work because I had disabled <laughs> I had disabled JavaScript following my own advice to our listeners. So the good news is it tells you, and I wanted to make I wanted to highlight that 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 JD mentioned that when he tried to run this, the you know the PDF said, "Wait a minute, this needs JavaScript." So so I would I continue to suggest that normally running with it disabled is the better thing because. You'd rather be notified that malware or not malware is wanting to do something than to have it be able to do it without your permission or your knowledge. So I but I want I thought it was important since I just told all of our listeners, go turn this off because it's dumb and you don't need it. Well, okay, whoops. There are some places where you do. Um, but the good news is you will be told if you do. And so then you can decide. Again, very much like no script in Firefox, you can decide. Does this matter to me? Do I think this is probably legitimate? In which case, you turn it on, and then you get the full functionality that JavaScript provides. I'm not saying it's not useful. I'm just saying it's so prone to abuse that it'd be nice to have that little intermediate step of saying, okay, this time I'm going to turn it on. Instead of going to a site that is downloading a PDF without your knowledge and using it to take over your machine. That's not what you want to have happen. SCS Online is saying in our Stickham chat room that uh, the IRS also uses these interactive PDFs for tax forms. That's <laughs> there's two things you really don't want to go together: insecurity and tax forms. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, yeah, it's functional. It's an issue of functionality. Uh, I understand that. Okay, got a long one. I'm going to try to skim through this one. This is from Adrian Oliver in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Wow, Chiang Mai. He cautions about getting embedded with Microsoft. Hi, and greetings from Chiang Mai, Thailand. Following one of your recent Security Now programs about the power grid in the U.S. being compromised, I thought I would share the following. I used to work with a large industrial automation systems manufacturer, which for the last 30 years has been designing, building, and installing big and small control and monitoring systems from nuclear power stations down to small factory systems. Throughout all those years, the critical control systems have always been based on either homegrown proprietary operating systems or a commercial real-time OS like VxWorks. Ten years ago, Microsoft were trying to convince us and in similar companies to adopt Windows Embedded. When asked the question of vulnerability issues, they stated they would guarantee a patch within two weeks of discovery. The control system could then automatically download it from the Internet, install, and reboot. Uh. Obviously, the concept of rebooting the control system of a nuclear power plant did not worry them, but it sure wasn't feasible for us. Given that the default for Windows is to automatically... First of all, it's online, right? <laughs> Problem number one. Yeah. Given that the default behavior for Windows is to automatically download, install, and reboot at the same time, it would be likely that all such... 
<laughs> All such Windows-powered control systems would reboot and potentially fail to boot at exactly the same time. Ah! <laughs> brings a new meaning to the, to the notion of the second Tuesday of the month. Talk about unclear on the uh. concept. In the 20 years I've been in this industry, our company never had any control failures in the dedicated control systems due to viruses, attacks, or hacking attempts. Yes, it is true that almost all the supervisory systems are now Windows-based, which are as vulnerable to viruses as any home computer. However, they are normally operating as supervisory-only, reporting, monitoring systems, hopefully never part of any control loop. I hate that word, hopefully, in there. All critical control systems are designed to operate and continue operating even when the supervisory system fails for any reason. Fortunately, I know that most European operators and manufacturers are extremely careful with what they allow to run their systems. One pharmaceutical company near where I used to live in the UK manufactured penicillin because the manufacturing process of penicillin produces a very fine dust. The explosion hazard is extremely high. The estimated blast radius, should an explosion occur, is one and a half miles the local permanently manned fire station is two miles away consequently the people who run the plant were extremely particular no pun intended about what software was used to control the plant as their lives depended upon it it sure wasn't anything from microsoft (laughs) on a different but related note nasa's mars rover is running vxworks as well still running had they been designed with Windows XP, we would have had to ask the Martians to reboot several times by now. <laughs> a great email. Wow. Thank you so much, Adrian Oliver in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Uh, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, this Windows Embedded is another one of these bad ideas. It's We've seen it before. This is what Microsoft does when they when something... Um, comes along they, that they don't really have an answer to. You know, the you know we had Unix on the internet for years. Then the internet became important, and Micro said, "Oh, um, hmm, we really didn't expect that. We were going to do modems with, <laughs> you know, with MSN." <laughs> and so they said, "Oh, wait a minute. Oh. We'll just stick a network adapter in our Windows machine." And it's now an, a, net, a networked operating system, you yeah, know, just yeah. as good as that oh, sticky yes. Unix. Yes. We know how well that worked out initially. Yeah. Um, then, of course, they were unhappy with PDAs because, you know, there was the POM and the Scion and the various PDAs. And they said, oh, gee, batteries, that's a problem. Oh, wait a minute. We'll just we'll do Windows CE. And of course, we know how well that worked initially, because yeah. um, it was a you know a huge power hog and space hog. And again, Microsoft just sells what they've got in whatever package yes. it needs to be crammed into. And I don't blame them; that's their job. Uh, yeah. But you yeah. don't have to use it. There are solutions, however, which are intrinsically wrong, and Windows always seems to step its foot there. Um, and then finally, the embedded application market happens. You know, the microprocessors are being, you know, used in dishwashers and microwaves and, you know, all kinds of consumer products and got to help us cars. And Microsoft says, oh, hmm, what do we got? Oh, we got Windows. Well, let's call it Windows Embedded. And, you know, the good news is apparently they have not succeeded in the nuclear reactor market so far, (laughs) which we'd really rather have them just stay out of. Well, not so fast, Steve Gibson. What? Question five from Don Digdon. Don Ding Don. Don. 
I don't want to say his name, Don Digdong, Ding Dong, but that's what it sounds like. Don Dingyan in the Netherlands spotted windows in a nuclear power plant. Steve and Leah, love your podcast. Listen to all the episodes. I live in the Netherlands, so I have to wait till Friday morning to download it, just in time for any weekend trips in the car. That's good. <laughs> That'll get you. This one will get you all the way across Holland. <laughs> anyway, the last two episodes, I've been hearing your worries about Windows being used to run critical systems. I'm sure you'll be happy to know that, yes, indeed, a nuclear power plant in the Netherlands is run on Windows. During a tour through the control room of the facility in Petten, I recognized Windows on the monitor. From what I could tell, it was NT4. Of course, I asked whether this was actually used to run the plant or just for administrative tasks. Without any trace of worry, they replied it was used to run the plant. When I expressed my concern and skepticism, they said, Oh, don't worry, it's been running a long time. It's completely secure. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, was the gist of their reply. Well, oh, dear, the good oh, news dear. is it was NT. I mean, the original NT, which was actually 3.5, I think, um, yes, that's even, right. Yeah. And even four, th- those were, you know, very strong bulletproof systems. Now you don't want to open metafiles. Well, and, and, and they, and they came out really before the internet was, was, was huge. They weren't really designed to protect from the internet. Right. And I mean, I'm sure that Microsoft has nothing that will update NT4, you know, <laughs> no. dynamically no. on the fly. So, you know, again, that kind of sort of pre-internet really, I mean, the the architecture of NT4 didn't have the bells and whistles and, and fluff and right. three different APIs. Right. It was a real business operating system. Browser, browser du jour right. and, and right. everybody fighting over it the way Windows does now. So, you know, I, I would say... Please don't change it. Don't do no no. Don't go to XP or Vista or Windows Seven. You nuclear power plant people, just stay with NT four and you know. And don't connect to the internet. And yeah, exactly. Uh, and they probably don't need to patch it at this point because there's you know that's it. You're done. Yeah. Well, and you know I actually I, I keep several friends back on Windows ninety eight because it's so old now. Nothing infects it. It's like a different DNA. It can't get the diseases that Windows really? does. Really? Is now. that true? Yeah. Yeah, none of these things, all of these things are all about the 32-bit environment and, and the new architecture. They don't affect 998 at all. Well, unless it's like a metafile exploit or something like that that happens to use, you know, take advantage of code that has been yeah. running since 98. Good point. And, uh, of course, then you know it's not going to be patched either. I don't know. I think Windows is a great choice if you're an accountant. <laughs> if you're working in a business, uh, in a business, we use we use Windows uh, here on our our office machines. It's a great office operating system. Well, it's a consumer operating system. It's fantastic. but it's not a good home operating system. It's it's, it's for consumers. It's just not for industry, and it's gotten used for industry, as we're going to see in some of the uh, follow-on questions here. Well, here you go. This is one from. Um, Let's see, Lucas Qualls in Jonesboro, Arkansas. You started something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says, I work at Walmart while I'm attending co- college where I'm hoping to graduate with a degree in computer information technology this summer. That's great, Lucas. We need more smart people listening to security now. I'm writing because over the past few episodes, I've heard you and Leo talk about Windows being the underlying technology in kiosks. Well, I just wanted to let you know that if you've ever seen the self-checkouts at a Walmart, they're running Windows XP. Mm. My store doesn't have them anymore. Thank God they were a total pain. But when we did, I saw them reboot several times. 
And uh, it's, yeah, sure, it's Windows XP booting up. And then a uh, program loads at boot time to run the kiosk. It's just drag it into the start menu. An interesting side note is that they run a terminal emulation program that allows them to access the proprietary system that the other Walmart cash registers connect to. Yeah, that's it's off. You see kludges like that where uh, yep. it's a it's kind of a text based system. Yep. Also, recently they took out the reliable quote old timey ATM that we had in the store. You know, the kind that has the green text on a screen and no graphics, uh, the kind that just works, and replaced it with the Walmart Money Center Express. We got word that it was supposed to be the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> That's how this new technology is always sold. Uh-huh. It has an ATM built in, but it also allows customers to buy money orders, purchase and reload gift cards and so on. I've seen them. They sell stamps. Well, it'd be a great thing if it actually worked. However, you guessed it. The new system runs when it does on Windows XP as well. And not only that, the thing doesn't work at all half the time. Things on it are constantly breaking. It's always needing somebody to come out and fix it. It has to be serviced by NCR at least once a week. I personally never used it because I just don't feel comfortable using my ATM card at a terminal I know is running on Windows and not even running well. So this is just another example of how some stupid people, how how stupid some people could be when designing things. Feel free to use this on the podcast. I don't even care if you mention my name or location. He's in in the, the home... Home office, practically, they could come out well, and get you. You know, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point. I understand it beating a dead horse. I want to get this out of my system. Our, our listeners need to know that we we won't keep this up. But mark my words, this issue of Windows being used in mission critical embedded applications where it absolutely should not be used is going to be something we're reading about in the future. This is. Bad behavior. There are there are there are fundamentally sound places where Windows should be used, like on all of our laptops, and absolutely places where the the ease of use is like the the first concern. Because sometimes you ought to have a certain minimal level of expertise before you are allowed to implement important systems that kind of that can affect all kinds of people and anyway i'm i'm <laughs> good thing i don't have a cuff hooked up to my arm measuring my blood pressure when i talk about this stuff <laughs> barry barton in scotland wonders about wi-fi psk disclosure rules hi steve i have a question about how a computer knows it's safe to disclose a pre-shared key to a wi-fi access point now we're talking here's a good question no more windows What made me think of this is on my Linux machine, I use Arch Linux, I define the Wi-Fi connection I want to use by creating a brief text file. (laughs) This is is how you do it in a real operating system, kid. A profile in Etsy slash network.d. That profile is used by the netconfig program to connect to an access point. In this file, I list three lines. One, security equals, quote, WPA. ESSID equals, quote, my SSID. Key equals, quote, my PSK. So in this profile, I'm identifying my access point by an SSID string and nothing else. Say that my access point's down for whatever reason. What's to stop someone else creating uh, their own access point with the same SSID, then recovering my secret PSK, pre-shared key, when a computer of mine tries to connect? If they recover this information, then they presumably would have full access to my access point, whatever... Uh, whenever it came back in service is in other words could you spoof 
the uh, SSID and get the pre-shared key? Yep, that's what he's asking. Yeah. And the cool thing, I, I, I like this question because it, it, it evidences a little bit of misunderstanding about the nature of pre-shared keys, but it's also the, the, the thing, the, the reason that they're so strong and, and the reason I like them so much is that it is not the case that that the client machine provides its pre-shared key to the access point. It's specifically called a pre-shared key, meaning that it's been shared with the access point prior to the connection. As part of the configuration process at each end, they both receive the same key, thus they're pre-shared. So the access point knows the key ahead of time that it shares with the client. And, and they don't even bother with anything except both of them encrypting everything they send using that key and attempting to decrypt everything they receive with the key. So no part of the key, none of the key ever goes in the air. It's only the use, the, the result of using the key that is sent back and forth. And the nature of ciphers, contemporary ciphers, are such that none of what's none of the result of the cipher leaks information about the key that was used to produce it. That's certainly important. As you, you wouldn't want to be able to reverse engineer the key from, from the results. The only way to do that, we've talked about over and over and over, it's a so-called brute force attack, where you just guess keys, checking the results to see whether you guessed correctly. And you and the strongest ciphers are those that have long enough keys that guessing is the only way to obtain any knowledge about the key. And getting close doesn't count. That is, if you're off one bit in the key, it still produces something that looks just as bad as if you're off all the bits in the key. So there are there are criteria for this, but all of our contemporary symmetric ciphers meet all of those criteria. So, I mean, pre-shared keys are so strong, I mean, stronger even than, than asymmetric keys, stronger than public key technology. It's one of the reasons, for example, I'm not going to use public key technology in my VPN because something like a breakthrough in factorization we've often talked about you know that breaks public key technology it does not break symmetric key technology which is fundamentally simpler but of course it's got the problem that that you need to pre-share the key many situations like with a vpn that's practical but situations for example on the internet where you're connecting to a, a remote server that you've never you've never connected to before you can't have a pre-shared key so that's why we need public key technology to allow a, a temporary and ephemeral key to be shared. So there's, there's a need for public key technology. It does something that, that, that private key technology, symmetric key technology does not do, but it's not quite as strong as just having pre-shared key technology. And in, in the case of a Wi-Fi network, you're able to just go manually configure the access point, give it the the knowledge to decrypt whatever it receives. And so that way, 
Um, at no point is the key being exposed. It's never, it's never transferred in the clear. Right. So, but so, what are you going to use if you're not going to use public key in your uh, VPN? Um, just pre-shared. Pre-shared keys. Okay. Yep. yep. And of they're, course, they're arguably stronger. A pre-shared key could be a one-time pad too, right? Well, one of the things that you never do is you you never actually use the key itself in order to do the encryption. That is, you right. know, you create the notion of session keys, right. and so the master key. Is is never itself exposed, but rather you 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 come up with a process of creating session keys. In fact, the the CryptoLink tunnel is going to be continually rekeying. It will always be rekeying. Probably no more than like every minute, it will automatically negotiate a key, and both endpoints switch to it. Uh, that provides something else called perfect forward secrecy, where if even if you if you by well, no, it's not possible to decrypt it. But even in the event that you did, you wouldn't get all of the session. You would get just a, a chunk of it. So it's, you know, it's a little going overboard, but why not? Yeah. Very uh, interesting stuff. I love crypto. It's one of my favorite topics. And it, it's it, just spectacular. Yeah. Great. Yeah. A little too much math for my limited. Well, that's why I want to I want to do crypto link so I get to play with this. Stuff. Yeah, I bet. So yeah. I deliver some, some value at the same time. Well, and it's a little arcane, and it's also very. Um, I mean, you, uh, you could you could tease it all out logically, but boy, it would be hard to do it uh, in a vacuum. Yep, you really need to know. You need to learn something too. An anonymous listener wonders <laughs> something. I wonder every day: Why is the internet still up? Thank you for the informative and entertaining podcast. I have a question with regard to Conficker, botnets, and the risk they present to cloud computing and the Internet in general. If a criminal organization has control over that many machines, don't they have the ability to take down any website on the, on the Internet? And if so, wouldn't extortion be another mem- method of gaining money? Has this happened? And is there an effective countermeasure to a massive DDoS attack? Continued success in your endeavors. Well, um... Certainly, it's happening all the time. It's happening uh, today, DDoS right attacks, now. Yes, DDoS attacks are now at the at, at an epidemic level, um, and it's because they make money. It's because it's it's no longer the case that script kiddies back you know ten years ago they would DDoS their friends in order to knock them off of an IRC server in order to sort of take over and and become the IRC operator sort of playing in, a, in an electronic version of King of the Hill. Now, it's all about money. It's about extorting, for example, gambling sites are often extorted um, because it's critical that the site be up during a horse race or a boxing match or whatever the site is, 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 um, um, is focused on and accepting bets for. Um, so the, the extorters... We'll say, look, we're going to knock you off the net during this important time unless you pay us, you know, this ransom. And uh, oftentimes, the first time, the gambling site will say, no, they're knocked off the net. It costs them a huge amount of money. The second time, they say, well, um, gee, could we get a discount for uh, <laughs> a, a quantity, a quantity discount? So now, one of the problems is following the money because the in order to get paid, money needs to be transferred, and and that's, of course, the Achilles heel of this. It's very easy for attackers to be anonymous in their attacks and in their threats, but somehow money's got to get from the source of the attack to 
or, or the the target of the attack who said, okay, I'm 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 going to pay for quote protection unquote back to the the people who are doing the extorting, and that's sort of the weak link in them maintaining their anonymity. Um, and there are various vehicles that that the, the bad guys have used to try to get around it. But you know, the internet as a whole is still up because big as these botnets are, the internet is even bigger. And the whole notion of a denial of service attack is a is a focusing of bandwidth on a single spot. You know, I've likened it in the past to taking a magnifying glass. And first you put your hand out in the sunlight, and that's fine. It feels warm, but not a problem. If instead, though, you take a magnifying glass and hold it the proper distance over your hand, the same amount of sunlight that is being collected by that that lens that was fine when it was falling diffusely on your hand, it is now focused into a very bright spot of burning flesh. Yow! And that no longer feels good. No. So a, a DDoS attack is the same thing. It's a whole bunch of bots, individually not very strong, collectively aimed at a single website. That site is down. Nothing can defend against contemporary bot attacks but while they're attacking that site they're not attacking any others in theory though they could attack the internet as a whole by attacking the uh the name servers the master name servers there have been attacks against the internet's own infrastructure that is the act for example the dns servers is, is is a key however many things make that more difficult even though there appear to be 13 ip addresses for for example the root servers there are actually many more machines than just 13, um, and they're, they use complex routing technologies in order to route traffic to the nearest root server, even at, at a single IP. So when bots think they're all attacking, even if they were all attacking a single IP, their traffic is automatically diffused across the Internet. So they're not all actually attacking a single location. So that's one thing. Also... All of this information in DNS is cached, often for a day or more. So the, uh, uh, an attack for an hour would hurt a little bit, but not tremendously. And there's lots of root servers, so you really need to hold them all off the net for a long period of time. And that, due, due, due to the distributed nature of the root servers and the fact that we've got caching and that there are 13 IP addresses, all that need to be under attack... That's a huge job. And it's not clear really what, what benefit there is. I mean, if you had pure malice, then you could say, okay, um, you know, we're going to try to do that. But really, these botnets are now profit centers, and so they're looking for someone that they can extort in order to get money. There's a, um, there's a movie plot there somewhere. Uh you know, plot to take down the Internet. I mean, that would be, you know, the old days, the uh, bad guy and the Bond villain would uh, be, you know, aiming a nuclear weapon at, at, at New York City. But in the in the modern days, uh, this, the extortion is, I will take down the Internet well, unless you give me one million dollars. I heard you talking um, during, I, I don't know if it was another podcast or I think it was something with Amber recently. And uh, uh, you mentioned that your son was home and he called you in a panic. And he said, the Dad, <laughs> the Internet is down. Come home now. I mean, we're dependent upon this increasingly every single day. We are we're depending upon this connectivity more and more. Yep. 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 Uh, if he freaked out, as, as would I. 
I'm completely sympathetic. However, I had to finish the podcast before yeah. I ran home to save his butt. Uh, Marv Schwartz at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Another one. There, You know, that's a great technical school. Great computer yeah. science uh, program. Wonders if we're not just choosing the wrong languages. He writes, Hi, Steve. I'm an avid Security Now fan. You've never discussed how the choice of language in which a system is written impacts the reliability and therefore the security of the system. In fact, since you're an accomplished assembly language programmer, perhaps you inadvertently promote assembly language programming. Assembly language, C, C++, all put a huge and unnecessary bookkeeping burden on the programmer and lead to mistakes. And they all provide unnecessary opportunities to clobber registers and memory through bookkeeping errors, bad pointers, subscripts out of range, buffer overruns, and so forth. They require the programmer to allocate and release memory. Language design that promotes writing reliable software is at least 40 years old. These languages are strongly typed. This immediately eliminates assembly C and C++. Although I've never used it, I remember a colleague returning from a stint at Xerox Park and commenting that when a Mesa program compiled, it would run. So if we're serious about writing reliable software, which is a prerequisite for secure systems, shouldn't we be using languages that help us do that and avoiding languages that invite us to mess up? Is this worth a session on security now? Are you going to write CryptoLink and Assembler? And if so, what are you planning for a UI? Thanks again for a wonderful program. Cheers. Marv, remember Ada? That Ooh. was uh, <laughs> the Defense <laughs> Department created that language with who had a horrendous spec for that express purpose. Ada, I don't think anyone ever actually created an Ada compiler. As it you, died. you talked about the horrendous spec, and it's like you, the spec was so horrendous that you couldn't actually, you know, make it go. But the point of it was to write a provably, you know reliable secure program yep yep and in fact uh mesa was uh an early algal like language that that park uh designed and it evolved through several uh, levels and in fact it was there's parts of it that were uh is the basis for java um the okay so marv's right um there's nothing more dangerous than assembly language uh because it gives you your bare programming to the bare metal yeah, you can do anything you want to, and sometimes you do those things inadvertently. Uh, the same is with C and, and C++. The reason programmers like C and C++ is the fundamental power that it offers, the fact that it it deals with pointers with abandon. And, you know, you can point at anything you want and do pretty much anything you want with it. There, You know, it is very powerful. There are definitely languages which are which wrap the programmer in layers of prophylactic protection and programmers don't like that because, you know, they don't feel robust and powerful. And that's what programmers want to feel like. Well, they feel like the compiler is nitpicking all the time. Well, and it is, but it's also keeping them out of trouble. It also is generally introducing enough overhead that they're not going to have the speed that they would if they were able to program to the bare metal. Um, so, so I completely agree that this is a trade-off. I even agree that you could argue we're making the wrong choice. Um, the the solution, however, for example, take NASA, where um, the the code that's being used in the shuttle absolutely has to be bulletproof i mean it absolutely can't suddenly be crashing and and needing a reboot in the middle of you know a launch sequence when it's when it's 
you know, up in the sky and, and under thrust, their solution is inspection. Well, testing and simulation and inspection, they just pound on it and pound on it and, and, and make changes very carefully and really look at it carefully and, and, and test it and, and perform regression analysis rather than using languages which are you know, unable to, to, to create some sorts of problems because they recognize, well, there's still other problems. I mean, sure, maybe it's not a buffer overrun, but it's a plus that should be a minus. I mean, if the programmer yeah. makes a mistake, it's still a bug. And so, you know, they're working on, on, on pounding it out just literally by sheer force of will and brute force and, and a methodology that allows them to, to be as sure as they can that this thing is working. The problem is, oh, my goodness, is that expensive. It is phenomenally expensive to produce software that way. How do you do so, it? Well, I mean, it buys a lot of human checks or. Yes, it's a lot of people involved and, you know, really good people who realize their reputation and the lives of the astronauts hang in the balance. So they just comb through the code by hand. Yeah. And they and they simulate it and they look at it. They've got a whole procedure and a structure for making sure this is as good as it is humanly possible to produce. And the problem is it's insanely expensive. And that's why, you know, commercial code is not produced that way. Well, and, you know, I mean, there's some little things you can do um, with even with C, like don't use uh, stir copy, use uh, stir end copy and things like that, that eliminate some buffer overruns. But you made a great point, which is that you cannot eliminate all programmer errors with any language. Right. And so it gives you a sense of false confidence to use a so-called, you know, safe language. Because you still have to check it. Yep. So that's re- that's a really it's an excellent point. I can also see why Microsoft, having spent years building a code base of C and C plus plus, is not very likely to convert it all to Mesa. <laughs> that's called rewriting, you know, fifty or a hundred million lines of code. Yeah. Charles Palin in uh, Norwood, Massachusetts, works in the museum industry and explains why they use Windows. I listen to your show every week. I've been a long-time listener. Thanks for your hard work, blah, blah, blah. Writing in response to episode 192, where you discuss the inherent problems with running Windows on kiosk and museum systems. I work as an interactive developer for a company called Boston Productions. We actually build and install museum and visitor center exhibits. I have previous work experience in corporate and small business IT. It was always a mystery to me why museums, signs, and kiosk systems run on Windows until I started working in the industry. There's several reasons, including total cost of ownership, IT support, dual display support, driver support. My boss recently wrote an elaborate article about this at backroom.bostonproductions.com. To summarize, the major reason we use Windows is touchscreen driver support, which is terrible even in Windows across different overlay vendors, and multiple display support. How easy do you think it would be to configure a touchscreen in a 1366 by 768 vertical resolution with dual monitor support so it can be viewed on a KVM from the exhibit machine room if the machine were running FreeBSD. Although I'm a longtime Linux user and utilize FreeBSD with DummyNet to simulate network lag when doing network programming, most of the museum and creative design industry are Mac users. It's unfortunate, but the vast majority of the people working in our industry simply don't have the computer skills needed to use a stripped-down OS for exhibit deployments. Everyone in our office uses a Mac except my boss and me, who are the programmers in our company. We utilize Windows Vista 
on our development machine, machines because we need access to the Flash IDE, multi-monitor support, and many other features. So what he's, I think, really saying, by the way, Macintosh supports the Flash IDE and multi-monitor support. But what he's really saying, I think, is that they want to use cheap off-the-shelf com- components yes. in these devices, and only Windows supports all that. Yes, and that they want development to be easy. Yeah. And, and Windows developers know is Windows. easy develop, to develop for. Yeah. So I, I liked this, and I wanted to, to, to share this with our, with our listeners because it does represent sort of an alternative view. That is, you know, the good news is this is not nuclear reactors. Um, and you can imagine that a museum um, doesn't have an unlimited budget, and they're probably being asked to do a lot for not much money. And if the machine crashes when someone presses a corner of the screen that they didn't anticipate, okay, whoops, uh, pull the plug out of the back, count to 10, plug it back in again. <laughs> that usually works. <laughs> no biggie. So, so again, here's an application where I don't have a problem with a consumer operating system being used because the hardware is cheap. The 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 expansion is, is available. It's going to be you know compatible enough. It's going to do the job. And if it doesn't, if it stops working, someone will say, "Oh look, that you know the screen froze." It's like, okay, fine. Pull the plug, plug it back in. <laughs> Reboot. Again. No problem. So and yeah, I mean, it's not it's such, it's, a, it's an aesthetic thing to see a blue screen of death or a Windows error message on a kiosk or a you know big billboard in Las Vegas. But that's only an aesthetic concern. I mean. There are other concerns as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I understand that. I'm glad you wrote, Charles, because that does explain it a little bit. Uh, Dan in San Diego wonders about the security of VPN solutions. How dare he? I, re- I really enjoy your discussions on SSL or, I'm sorry, TLS. One question, though. How do government organizations or individuals, for that matter, spy on people who use VPNs? I know it's possible. Do they need the assistance of the company providing the VPN service to that uh, customer? This was a great question because it it deals with one of the fundamental issues of security that I want to continue to remind our listeners about. And that is you need to appreciate and hopefully understand what it is that your security is protecting you from. A perfect example from earlier this hour, Leo, was was this issue of the Windows firewall. You know, the assumptions, oh, turn on the firewall. Right. It's like, whoops, well, wait a minute. It's not protecting us from LAN-based threats. Right. It's no, only from, I had no idea. Yeah. From WAN-based threats. Yeah. So similarly, a VPN, a virtual private network, like SSL or one based on SSL or even, you know, my CryptoLink forthcoming product, it what it does is it is protecting the link. It's protecting the connection between the two from attack, modification, eavesdropping, um, or any leakage of information of any kind. But, for example, if a protected, if a machine using the protected link had a keystroke logger on it, then that's not the VPN's job. That's not the SSL connection's job. The keyboards could, the, the keyboard could still be, could still be um, monitored and filtered and checked for whatever, um, completely separate from the fact that the connection to the internet, if that's what the SSL uh, VPN is being used for, is secure. So, so again, it's you know the way government organizations or individuals could spy on someone using a VPN is to install a little 
hardware keystroke logger in the connection between the keyboard and the computer. And it will gleefully suck in and record all the keystrokes um, and, and even get the protection of the VPN when it tries to send them uh, back to the mothership. So, so again, it's, it's the case that you can rely upon the security technology, whatever it is, given that it's been properly implemented and designed, to do what it's supposed to do. But it's also equally important to understand what it doesn't do, what it wasn't intended to do. And important not to assume that, you know, that it, you, you get total protection for something that never said that's what it was going to offer. I never said I'd do that. <laughs> Finally, the last question, and it comes from the islands, from Jamaica. Andre says, hey, I know something, you know something about Windows and ATMs. Hi, Steve and Leo. I can relate to the surprise Paul experienced upon discovering that ATMs at his bank ran Windows XP. I always assumed they ran a special, robust, embedded program or operating system, or at least a customized flavor of Unix on these machines. Needless to say, I was very surprised last year when I started working as a software engineer for a company that sells and supports ATMs, only to discover that the majority of ATMs run Windows XP. It turns out that the manufacturer whose ATMs I work with used to run OS2 on them. When OS2 went under, they moved first to Windows NT, then to XP. They sold that move to Windows based on ease of software development, among other things. On the security side of the uh, equation, these ATMs run in a somewhat isolated environment network-wise. They're not connected to the Internet. No personal data is stored locally. There are many levels of encryption, including hardware-based for really key stuff as well as on communications. And for the record, no, Leo, we don't write ATM software and Visual Basic. (laughs) There are also many pieces of software that manage failures, crashes, blue screens of death, and the like. That being said, personally, I don't believe anything or anyone should run Windows except perhaps the Death Star. I was going to say the Borg, but they wouldn't be that stupid. So yes, it's a bit unnerving that Windows pops up in places which are obviously bad ideas. It's getting back to that same thing. We want to run a commodity hardware we want our developers to know how to write for it. He didn't say what they use, but I presume it's Visual Studio and C Sharp or C++ or C. <laughs> you notice one thing we have not seen is anybody saying we're, we're running on Vista. That's surprising to me. I wonder why that is. Oh, goodness. Well, they're just I, uh, slow. They're always slow to move to the new OS, but XP is now seven years old. Please be slow. Please. <laughs> well, and, and what, of course, what will happen is, my, as we know, Microsoft is not going to be letting people use XP forever. Microsoft is shutting the door, and they're going to be stop. You know, th- right. they're going to stop doing security updates, and they're 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 going to abandon it basically, and force everyone to move forward. So at some point, you know, all these systems that are running XP will probably be migrated to. I hope they skip over Vista. Maybe they'll go to Windows Seven, and not soon. Please, please, <laughs> please, let's give Windows Seven a year to settle down, and get a first few service packs under our belts. Yes. Okay, and that's my. That's the last word. On embedding Windows, where you know application and and well application prudent application proper use of Windows, we will move on. But again, mark my words, um, listeners, this is going to be something that that bites us at some point. Not the and, end of you know, the story by any you heard, means. You heard it here first. So, what is next week, Mister G? I don't know. Oh, how exciting. We'll see, we'll see what comes up. I've got a whole bunch of list of things. Um, I'd love to talk about the DNS benchmark, but I don't think I'm going to quite have all the documentation and everything pulled together by then. So probably three weeks from now, we'll do that and we'll do something next week. Not sure what. 
You know, and uh, I should mention that in uh, a couple of weeks, on uh, May 24th, we're going to do a twit with Dan Bricklin, oh. uh, the creator of VisiCalc. And you, you, uh, you, you're welcome to join us if you'd like. Uh, I'd love to. I think it's going to end up being a computer history twit. Um, Dan, Dan wrote something called uh, DBD, Dan Bricklin Demo. Yes. Uh, or just short, and also known as just Demo. Um, the original one was just a text screen slideshow where you had it was basically a text screen editor where you could e- you could edit characters and colors and so forth and then you were able to step through and the idea was that back in the day for example a program like visicalc was also text based visicalc ran on a text screen and you know word processors did and many programs did so he wrote this basically it was just a textual slideshow to to show someone to demo Oh, it also had like macros and things. So you could kind of wire it up and make it sort of look like it was a live running app when in fact it was just the screens. I used it to design Spinrite. Really? The basis for all of my screens. I have DBD files for, 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 you know, for many versions of Spinrite all along. I've used Dan Brickman's demo as, you know, basically I never made it run but I, I designed the UI because the UI expressed all the features the program would have. And then I basically wrote Spinrite behind the screen in order to make all those things huh. that I designed visually make them come alive. Well, that's kind of the idea behind RAD, Rapid Application Development, and, and Visual Basic is you design the screen first, you design the UI first with no wiring, and yep. then you lift up the hood and you go, oh, I'll make that button go to there and this and, and this. And you hook this. everything up. You hook it all up. So he's kind of ahead of his time. He says he's now doing open source programming in, sorry about this, JavaScript. Oh. <laughs> but JavaScript's actually a great language. It's a very, I mean, I, well, I wouldn't say it's a well-designed language, but it's a very useful language because uh, you can do so much with this client-side uh, browser stuff. Yeah. So if I were, you know, if I were a young guy starting out in programming, I'd absolutely learn JavaScript and jQuery. I think so, too. I mean, it is... It is, well, and the other thing, I mean, we know, for example, that uh, Java and JavaScript sort of hand in hand, it, it's, the, it's the, as I understand it, it's the, it's the platform for the pre also, right? Uh, I don't know about Java, but JavaScript and CSS and, uh, yeah, and this was what Apple did first with the iPhone. They said, well, you don't, you don't have to write applications. You can use uh, JavaScript and CSS uh, to create applications. That's how dashboard widgets and Windows gadgets and a lot of Yep. Uh, uh, you know, the Yahoo widgets are all created the same way. You can do a lot with this. And so essentially you have a universal client exactly. base. You've got, you've got, you know, everything understands it because everything has a browser exactly. or a browser component. Yep. And that means everything can run what you write. It suffered initially because the spec was so poorly written and it was implemented differently on every browser. Mm. And you had to write lots of code that said, well, if it's this browser, then do this. If it's that browser, then do that. I think that's gone away, and the use of libraries like jQuery have made it a lot more <clears throat> kind of orthogonal language and easier to understand, easier to learn. I'm, I'm, I've, you know, I've been playing with it. I love it as a language. I mean, it looks just like C. Yeah. If, if you use C, you, you'll you kind of know JavaScript. You just have to learn the the DOM API in your set. But it can also be the source of much pain, as we have learned. Steve, next week, who knows? A Security Now episode that could cover anything. You go to grc.com. You will find, of course, Spinrite there. That's Steve's incredible program uh, for disk recovery, disk maintenance. It's a must-have. If you have a hard drive, you need Spinrite. 
You'll also find lots of free stuff there. Steve has so many great free security applications like Shields Up, Decombobulator, Shoot the Messenger. Also some fun tools like Wismo. Uh, And soon some new stuff coming. Of course, transcripts of the shows are there. You'll find 64 kilobit and 16 kilobit versions for the people who don't have all the bandwidth in the world. It's all there at grc.com. I didn't ask you, did you go see Star Trek yet? I'm doing that right now, as a matter of fact, (laughs) this afternoon. This is the first of the Star Trek movies that I have not done the whole stand in line, see it on opening day routine. I guess a little. I am getting a little old. Actually, I just I didn't want to fight the crowds, and I knew that I'd be able to go Wednesday afternoon. Perfect. After recording, when the theaters are quiet, and slip in and Good. and really enjoy it. And boy, I mean, the reviews have been great. It made eighty million dollars in the first long weekend of of opening, and they made more money on Saturday than they did on Friday, which always a good start- sign. As a good sign because it's yeah. growing because word of mouth is, is so strong. So. It, it's it's a it's probably the best Star Trek movie. Certainly one of the best, and it's just really a, a pleasure. So I think you'll love it. I'll be very Great. interested in your reaction next week. I'll tell you next week. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you then. Thanks, Leo. Security now.